0: You're listening
1: to New Voices, Voices, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy Project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan.
0: Hi, my name is Elliot Chen. I was most recently a postdoctoral fellow on the Extending New Narratives Project at Western University. And in the coming fall, I am excited to be starting as an assistant professor of philosophy at Xavier University in Cincinnati.
1: So Elliot, tell me a little bit about your your work, your current work, uh, and the projects you're working on as a New Narratives postdoc.
0: Sure. So I mostly work in the history of philosophy of science, um, particularly in the early modern period. In the past year, I've worked on Two projects that are relevant to the grant. So the first, um, I've been starting work on uh, Bossi, who is an 18th century Italian physicist um, who had some research on electricity that uh, hasn't been explored. A lot of it was lost or, or wasn't preserved. So uh, I've been doing the laying the groundwork for a project in that direction, and I've been continuing to develop work on Emily de Chatelet um, on her arguments against essential gravity and her foundations of physics.
1: Well, let's maybe go in the opposite direction. So tell me first about uh, sure. a little bit more detail about your work on Emily de Chatelet.
0: Okay, so the, the paper itself, um, de Chatelet has these arguments in chapter 16 of the foundations where she argues that Newtonian attraction, so the idea that bodies could um, act directly on one another across a distance, is without sufficient reason. She thinks that the the Newtonians who have followed after the after the Principia have taken this idea too far, and they're they're really not saying something intelligible. These arguments are interesting because all throughout the Foundations, she develops um, mechanism as the foremost and only way of explaining natural phenomena. So, oh, but but there's no place in the work where she explicitly defends this um, this claim, um, except when she's arguing against Newtonian attraction. So this is the sort of last stand for for mechanism. The secondary literature has touched on these arguments a little bit, but they only talk about the first part, and there are two, two sections that I think are really important. These are 395 and 396 in, in chapter 16. So in the first, she sets up um, this dichotomy. So you've got two bodies that are separated across a void, and uh, we suppose, like the Newtonians, that there's some law according to which the bodies attract one another. And um, this causes them to accelerate, so there's some sort of change that occurs in, in each of the bodies, and so we ask, well, all changes must have causes, right? She's a, she believes in the principle of sufficient reason, and uh, so it's our business as natural philosophers to identify the cause. It can either be in the body or outside of it, and uh, because bodies are inertial, they don't have a power of self-motion. It can not be in the body itself, and so it must be outside of it, but by stipulation, the the area between the two bodies is void. You've just got these two things in the world. Um, so there, there's nothing that could cause it outside of it. Um, and that's the the first argument that she gives um, against Newtonian attraction and what scholars have focused on heretofore. So just sketched in that way, it's a bad argument because um, <laughs> she's not talking at all about what the second body could be doing, right? And that's really the the hook for the Newtonians, right? They want to say that it's the second body that's doing the work. Um, so in the in the second section that follows right afterwards, um, it feels kind of like a parody of the history of philosophy to say, like, well, just keep keep reading. A bit <laughs>
1: so <laughs> but, much, so much work, right? Well, but if you look at the next passage. Right.
0: <laughs> so she, she doesn't do the best job of, uh, of advertising this Um so she, she puts um, the spotlight on the principle of sufficient reason, right? So this is the thing that's telling us that Newtonian attraction is no good, but it's not playing a, a major role. Uh, the way that she phrases the punchline of this second section is that um, she's going to rule out the possibility of essential gravity. Um, so this idea that if you're to locate the cause of gravity, you can do so by pointing to the essence of bodies, right? It's sort of constitutive of bodies to, to do this attractive thing. Yeah, so the, the way that I see this argument going, and this is the, I guess, the novel interpretive work. So first she considers the phenomenon of gravity, right? So if we think about bodies falling on Earth, um, well, we can imagine bodies falling on the moon too and on all sorts of different planets. And then what, when we think about what's happening with the attraction, we say, well, this attractive power is causing bodies to move in a certain direction and with a certain speed. But then if we ask ourselves, well, is this always in the same way? We have to say no, because on the Earth, the bodies will be directed to the earth center Um, on the moon. It'll be directed towards the moon center. And then depending on how far away these bodies are, they'll fall at with different speeds, right? So the effects caused by gravity are variable. And um, she's got this definition of necessity where something's necessary, if it's possible in only one way. And so the effects of gravity aren't necessary. So she uses this to point to a lack of necessity in the cause of gravity And she has this chapter three where she talks about her doctrine of essences, um, where she argues for the idea that essential properties must always be necessary, that uh, the essential properties are the things that make up a being. And so if they vary, or if they change, or if they turn on and off, um, then you've changed the being, right? So in order for the being to say the the same as it is, its essential properties must always be the same. So um, because... The cause of attraction is variable in this way it's just not the sort of thing that could ever belong to an essence and so the the sort of third possibility of the second body acting on the first um, as just something that it essentially does is ruled out because of this variability and and the way that attraction has to work Ooh! I, i all of a sudden went into explaining an argument no no i thought that was
1: great that's that's awesome I think it's so great to hear this level of detail about scholarship being done. Um, I was thinking as as you were talking that it's so exciting that we've reached a point, you know, with at least some historically neglected figures, that there's an existing body of scholarship. Uh, You know, you you can skip in your work the kind of, you know, like calling through preliminaries and and giving overviews Mm. and instead just deep dive right into the details and and nuances of an argument. You know, it it feels to me at least like like an exciting time to be doing this kind of work does this track what it feels like for you as, as a du Châtelet scholar
0: yeah I agree yeah I, I had the same thought last month um, I went to Hopos and I gave this du Châtelet talk and um, the first presenter I think she began by giving a little bit of explanation about du Châtelet but it was very yeah. brief um, the third person didn't say anything I, I didn't have to give a preamble about introducing the speaker um, like the whole session was on du Châtelet and they're scholars of de Chatelet in the audience, and you can just talk about an argument rather than having to say, well, this person is important because of these reasons. It's just uh, assumed.
1: Right? Yeah.
0: Um, yeah.
1: So how, how did you start working on de Chatelet?
0: By dumb luck. Um, <laughs> 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 so there were two really um, serendipitous things. So when I was a first year graduate student, I had told the person who was gonna become my advisor that I had interests in history, Um, as well as contemporary philosophy of physics. So he gave me a history paper to present on for the reading group. And it happened to be one of Catherine Brading's early articles on Duchesne. So I I pitched this thing and was like, this this author seems really cool. I've never heard about Uh them. I'd really like to, to find out more. And then I went to a conference the year after, but I think it would have only been a couple months later. And then I met a student of, at the time, student of, Catherine's, who was working on, I think it was mostly Duchatelet's dissertation on the nature of fire. At that time, the the, the translation wasn't out yet, um, yeah. and so I was asking the student, "Well, you know, um, have these um, have these chapters been translated yet?" And and she put me in. I think she she must have told Catherine about me at some point, and then I got invited to these um, workshops that were yeah. happening. So I was just in the right place at the right time. Um,
1: so, just so you've obviously worked on Du Châtelet for a good chunk of yeah. your your PhD time, how did how did you find it? I mean, we we're talking about how there is now a growing body of Du Châtelet scholars and and literature on the topic. Did you find it was a pretty straightforward process, or did you encounter any difficulties in working on someone who doesn't have the same literature as, say, Kant?
0: Hundreds of years of scholarship, yeah,
1: yeah. right.
0: But Du Châtelet has been kind of nice. I feel like I'm a second wave du Châtelet scholar, um, or maybe like a third wave du Châtelet scholar, if you count people who started working on her like a, a couple decades ago, right? And they're mm-hmm. the, the lone wolves. So um, Catherine Brading had, again, had that her book, and I respond to a, a reading that she gives there. So the literature has been growing, and um, I feel like I've, I've been just enough behind of the, of the uh, at the right point on the curve so that yeah. um, people are still interested in duchatelet and there's stuff to respond to.
1: So this offers a good transition to talk about your work on Lara Bafi, where you are very much you know, here in the first wave of philosophers yeah. to engage with your thought. <laughs> uh, so how did you get interested in your project on Bafi?
0: Right. So I feel uh, blind fortune has been leading me to many good places. <laughs> <honestly>. <laughs> um, so uh, when the when the call for applications for the new narratives um, mm-hmm. postdoc was announced, I, I talked to my advisor about it and said, "You know this is something I'm really excited about. Could you help me brainstorm what to what to pitch? And uh, originally, I was thinking about just uh, more du Chatelet because that was in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd always thought that um, I didn't want to just be riding on the the coattails of other people right and to mm-hmm. to be the second or third wave yeah. scholar of these new figures, but to To try to to do something and uh, help the team, right, Um, by by leading the charge somewhere. Yeah. Um, Not not that everyone has to do that, or that's the only way of helping, right? Yeah. It it was just something that I was feeling self conscious about, and my advisor mentioned this figure, Bossi, right, because she was known in in certain circles, but not in philosophical ones. Um, And I'm not sure how exactly this happened. Um, At the time, I didn't. I don't think he told me the full story or or, or maybe i had forgotten, but I think it what happened was Francesca Vedotto, who's here at Western, um, had been teaching her okay. in one of her classes and had mentioned this to my advisor. Um, and then, so that was why she was on his radar. Um, and then I looked into it and he didn't know anything about this work on electricity. And um, it just seemed like a, a really great opportunity. And I also later found that a more senior grad student who finished a couple years before me had mentioned being interested in Bossy and du Châtelet, actually. Um, yeah. So she was sort of on the, on the She's fringes the of people's radars. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, tell me about Laura Bossy. Tell me about her philosophical work.
0: So uh, I, I, there's, there's not too much to, to say yet. Um, I'm still okay. uh, at the, at the beginnings and laying the groundwork. So some interesting things to to be on the lookout for. Um, early in her career, she published a lot on uh, sort of standard topics in classical mechanics and uh, hydrodynamics. And she's talking about fluids. Like, there, there are issues with the um, the waterways in Bologna. And so it was sort of of practical interest to, to study these things. and. Um, there was a turn um, where she started to research electricity. So mm-hmm. this is the, the Leyden jar had recently been invented
1: and Benjamin Franklin. The, the, the Leyden jar?
0: Yes, the Leyden jar. Um, what, what is the
1: Leyden jar? Uh,
0: so uh, in modern terms, you can call it the early capacitor. Um, in lay people's terms, it's a thing that can store electrical charge. Okay. Um, and uh, briefly the description, it, they're really cool. You have to, you have something like glass maybe it's in the shape of a cylinder and then you've mm-hmm. got two plates that are fitted to this glass so that one is on the outside and, and covers it, it can, so it can sort of slide in and then there's another smaller plate that fits on the inside of the cylinder and usually there's something like a um, like a rod that goes down and touches the um, the inner plate and uh, maybe there's like a hook or something at the top so what you do is you can attach the the outside, um, say, to a ground, and you can attach the inside to some sort of electrical generating machine, like a wind source machine or something. Or if you're you're super old school and you've got like something that can generate static electricity by rubbing two things together. Yeah. So you you, you build up charge um, on these things, and there are a couple of puzzles with it. So if you connect the two sides by like a wire, so maybe you've got like yeah, like, a, like a, a circular or curved wire that can touch the, the top part of the inner plate and the outside of the outer plate. Um, if you touch them together, you'll get a spark. And then afterwards, if you touch them again, um, nothing will happen because the sort of balance has been restored, equilibrium has been restored. Okay, so if you want to store electricity, that's one way to do it. You can have it in this in this jar. The puzzling thing about it is that if you take the two plates apart, Um, and then you touch them together, nothing will happen. And you can put them back with the glass in between and try the same trick of touching them with a a little curved piece of wire. You'll get the spark again. So there's something about this glass in the middle that is important to generating the electrical shock or current. Um, And people are struggling to, to try to come up with some explanation for this. Yeah, okay, so there are lots of new developments in electrical research, and there are a couple um, interesting applications So that people were trying to investigate at the time. One of them, um, so Bossi's husband, um, Giuseppe Verratti, um, was interested in the medical applications of electricity, and a couple people in Italy and France were as well. And there's a scandal of um, people were thinking that uh, somebody had been cured by the application of electricity, and um, this French guy Nollet, went to investigate this, and and so visited the Bossi Varati household, and uh, there are a lot of publications on this. So um, there's this question about: Wow, well, can electricity can electricity produce medical benefits? Um, if so, why? And what is the connection between common electricity that we can store in this in this Leyden jar thing, and um, whatever it is that animates bodies. Okay, so what's the connection there? And um, what about artificial versus natural electricity um, more generally? So mm-hmm. um, that Leyden jar stuff that you can generate with a machine and the thing that we find in lightning clouds. So there's the, the famous kite experiment that Franklin does, and Ferrati is the first one to replicate it. At, is it in Italy or is it in Europe? I think afterwards they, they were banned um, from building lightning rods in the city, and they had to um, do this out <laughs> in the countryside afterwards. Um, smart yeah, move.
1: So, city uh, planning-wise. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> Probably a good idea. Um, so th- th- there's all this stuff um, that's going on in the time period, okay. and Bossy, for, for some 20 years, um, is also producing work on electricity and giving presentations at the academy, but none of the transcripts have survived, and she didn't okay. publish any of this scholars speculate why it's sort of unclear um the i think the consensus is that she had very high standards um and she didn't want to overshadow her husband more than she already was um Oof. and yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> i appreciate the high standards point you know? <laughs> i like to hope that that one day someone will uh... We'll go back through my corpus of work and say, you know, she didn't publish anything. <laughs> Her standards are yeah, just too high.
0: Just very high standards. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's, that's the yeah. explanation. Nothing else. Right. But, you know, whatever the reason is, uh, it remains, right, that there is not a right. lot of written material for you to, to do scholarship about. Uh, so what are you using as the material for your work on Buffy?
0: Yeah, so the idea is to look at her correspondence. Um, okay. So she was corresponding extensively with a lot of the leading figures of the day. And there have been little tidbits mentioned in the literature among the historians um, mm-hmm. that suggest that there, there's something to be found there. Um, okay. It's just a lot I'm... of Italian to translate. <laughs>
1: <laughs> do you, do you, read, you read, presumably, Italian?
0: I've been learning. Although something I didn't anticipate is the, um, because I, I'd worked with, a, a number of other languages before and, and felt like I was comfortable translating um, texts the, from the original to, to English, but um, it's a whole nother matter to scan um, like hundreds of dozens or yeah. hundreds of pages of a different language and then find exactly what it is that, that you want.
1: So insofar as you have read and continue to work through this correspondence, uh, do you find the philosophical content easy to locate? Are you searching for a particular discussion or they're just kind of little pieces interspersed throughout?
0: I think it'll end up being, um, little bits here and there because, uh, when people are writing casual letters, they don't Mm -hmm. often, oftentimes they don't give full philosophical discourses, (laughs) explain their ideas fully. Um, Yeah. But the, the sorts of things that I'm on the lookout for are what sorts of experiments, um, was she performing and what did she think they meant, um, if they came out one way or another? Um, and then to sort of use the, if she doesn't explain more in detail, to use the surrounding figures to see what the import was of these experiments, and then to get tidbits about uh, analogical reasoning. So this idea that electricity is like a fluid, and so we can leverage things that we know about fluids from studying things like water um, to explain this new strange substance um, that we call the electrical fluid.
1: So she, she does a lot of analogical reasoning.
0: Yes. So that's, that's what the historians suggest. Um, okay. That she's following this. Um, oh, yeah. So there are these two pillars that can help to um, interpret Bossy's work. I think one is um, uh, Newton's optics, and the other is Franklin's electrical research. So, um, yeah, the pitch has been that following this sort of Newtonian program of finding unifying attractive and repulsive principles um, in nature this is guiding work into electricity and with the intention of coming up with like a, a unified theory of nature. And uh, I'm hoping that this can be found in a really developed way and then the sort of philosophical interests that we locate in Maxwell can be translated over to, to work on on Bossy too.
1: So you've now mentioned a couple strategies or tools for working on historical figures who haven't yet found purchase or been really studied in a specific subdiscipline. In our case, philosophy. Uh, in particular, right, you're you're using work with other intent to help situate your project. You know, either Bossy's contemporaries, like Newton or Franklin, or historians who have written about Bossy's life and work. Um, I would love uh, if you could just go into some more detail about how you employ these strategies uh, and how they help you to get going on this sort of you know, what we've been calling this first-generation philosophical project. It's a little bit intimidating, your daunting undertaking of of studying someone with a certain eye, with a certain lens that hasn't been looked at through that lens before.
0: Right. Um, so the first that I've been able to look to is other sorts of literature. So while there isn't um, philosophical secondary literature, there's historical secondary literature, and they touch on some philosophically interesting themes. Um, And it's sort of been my, the the guiding hope that um, certain things weren't discussed in more detail or further drawn out just because of a difference in emphasis among disciplines, right, that historians are interested in one thing that might not be the same thing that the philosophers are interested in. So if one is lucky, um, there can be other sources to, to draw from. Um, the other thing that I've been able to rely on is other contemporary texts. So like looking to Newton's optics and Franklin's experiments and observations. Um, there's also another figure that Bossie was friends with, um, Bacaria, who, Giambattista Batista Bacaria, who was uh, doing a similar project to her and was, sort of like the other leading figure who was um, promoting Franklinism in, uh, in Italy. Um, There's a competing, a competing um, two fluid theory that was popular in other parts, but um, Bologna was because of Bacchia and was this bastion of Franklinism. Uh, So he, he has work that's been published and translated into English that um, I'm going to start to read soon. Um, But there can be other texts that can help to develop a, Broader picture of what somebody is working on and how to understand their work, um, especially if they haven't written a lot or if it's in a different genre than is normally appreciated in philosophy, that we can look to other sources that are of contemporaries.
1: So, my last question, I think, uh, about your work on Bossy uh, is one about intentions. So, again, we've been discussing the difficulties of, of a first generation historical philosophical project um well hopefully right very fruitful there can be you know it can feel like there's there's a high bar to entry uh, and then definitely less of a clear path as to where you're going with doing this work uh, so given all that I, I wanted to ask what are your motivations for taking on this project uh in this project in particular right what do you want to get out of a philosophical reading of Flora Bossi.
0: yeah there's a lot to say here so maybe the first is just for the sake of curiosity or interest right there we were drawn to things that we find philosophically interesting so for this particular project when I was first thinking of what to dissertate on um, I was interested in the notion of field and the way that this developed as like a new ontological concept um, that was being used in um, in physics so like how did this notion come about why were people on board with its intelligibility? Um, how did this shift the way that people were doing research? And I ended up just getting the the first, or one of the first chunks of that through this question of action at a distance. But a whole another arc um, is looking at the way that research developed in studying electromagnetism, right? So famously, um, Faraday and Maxwell will develop field notions, either through some sort of um, like almost through an image in the case of Faraday with lines of force um, or through the, the Maxwell's field equations. And uh, and one of the philosophically interesting things with that bit on Maxwell in particular is the use of analogical reasoning. So that was the sort of philosophical hook for me in Bossy. There's the additional element, of course, of so I, I struggled for a long time trying to think about why I was doing the research that I was doing rather than something else, right? Like why why study something really abstract um, in the metaphysics of physics when I could be doing something that could help people, right, or, or have some some sort of direct impact on the world. And the, the sort of middle ground that I found peace with is trying to promote these new narratives, right? Like you you get to study philosophically interesting stuff and moreover have... Um an impact in a good way on the community, right? by bringing um, these stories into the into the conversation. Um, yeah, there, there's one more thing actually. So' something that I've been thinking about that I've heard asked in a different way um, and not I haven't heard it asked in the way that I'm about to ask it. um so the the first way <laughs> was what sorts of papers should we be publishing on these new figures and the the sort of supplemental follow-up was should we be connecting it with existing figures that are like well established in the yeah. canon? Um, should we be tying it to traditional questions right that are commonly asked in philosophy? like how, yes. what's the best way of doing this? And um, the, there's a there's another sort of question that's similar um, that I've been grappling with, which is what sort of work generally should we be trying to produce on these new figures? especially if we're interested in doing this work of building a base right for a future scholarship originally i was just intending to write a single like just to start with right to write a a single paper on bossy just to get the ball rolling um and this is like a deliverable good that um, if one is quick um, could be produced in a year but as i've been working more on it and seeing the kind of work that needs to be done like just putting out translations so that yeah. people who don't read Italian or don't read Latin can start to do this work and you can make it available or just doing the archival work to find the the correspondence that needs to be read in order to to make certain yeah. t- arguments or, um, or digitizing it even, right? And so that it can be, that, so that other people can dig through it um, yeah. without having to take the trip to Bologna or to the Vatican or, or wherever. Then should one be writing papers or should one be writing books? And if one is trying to leverage literature on surrounding figures, should one also try to develop those figures in an effort to understand the, the central, central person, right? So like, should I be writing papers on Franklin too, so that people can understand his philosophical importance in order for there to be something to, to read when trying to understand Bossy. So it sort of felt like writing, like a second dissertation or a (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, yeah rather than a single paper
1: um yeah maybe that can or maybe i don't know if it feels or sounds sounds daunting but i mean there is something i think that that strikes me is very you know very excited about that you kind of take you take one avenue and then all of a sudden, you're like, well, actually, you know, in order to properly understand this one figure who I'm in the process of understanding and developing, I also need to simultaneously start to do this. And one person can't do it all. But, but that in just going back to the question about intentions and that in mm-hmm. just undertaking one project that you're curious about or kind of exploring one thing that you might have heard sometime can lead you to this whole new research avenue. I think it's a really, really nice part. About oh, this this work you're doing, and very exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah. As um, I guess, right, as a third thing to to say for why why study this figure, why do work of this yeah. nature? That um, it's a really nice way to build a research program. If it, yeah.
1: and,
0: right, rather than saying I'm going to respond to this one person and this point in the secondary literature on on Kant, right, yeah. you can you can develop a new figure, right, and and in the process you end up looking at all these other things and. There you go. 10 years of work to do in philosophy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Oh. And that was, yeah, like a lot that it's not just the work of writing papers that is important here. It's also the work of just kind of disseminating um, the information. Yeah. How do you think about prioritizing your your time between this work of disseminating or translating, making texts accessible uh, versus writing and researching to, to kind of draw out or make evident the philosophical value of these works?
0: Yeah, so that's really difficult. Um, I think there are a lot of practical considerations that um, unfortunately have too much weight, right? (laughs) If you say uh, you need to publish to be successful in the job market or to meet a tenure clock, then uh, maybe spending a summer in an archive isn't the best use of time, or
1: Mm. uh,
0: spending two years translating a whole bunch of correspondence. isn't going to be the sort of deliverable that the committee is looking for. Um, so these sorts of things can push away from doing this kind of work. But mm-hmm. um, if the community values and understands the importance of this sort of work, I, I feel like that's the, that's the sort of shift that can help encourage more work that um, is required to, to bring new figures into the mix.
1: So I'd love to end, Elliot, uh, by just, if you would, asking you to to reflect on what your favorite part of working on new narratives has been.
0: So I, I, I mean this when I say this, I and mean, it's not like a um, some sort of plug or uh, uh, pandering. Uh, it, the community, actually. Yeah, um, yeah I find that the, the scholars who are working on these figures are all really supportive of each other, right? There's a sense that People are just trying to do good work that they value and think will improve the community. Um, and everybody's helping
1: each other out. Well, thank you so much, Elliot. This was, this was wonderful. Yeah, uh, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to New Voices. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy Project. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth-Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D Major, performed on the violin by Pizzeria Armanici. For more information about the project, and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. New Voices is a continuation of the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. You can also find past episodes under that name in all the same places. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.